Welcome to this week's episode of The Space Between Us. My name is Crystal Coburn. I am your host, and I am so thrilled that you are here. I am deeply grateful for our community, and I cannot wait to dive into this week's conversation. This is the first conversation that we've had with a known commissioned artist, and I am really excited to share this conversation with you because I think it's a perspective that we haven't heard before. And I want to say thanks to you, um, Derek. I just, I just want to say thanks for being willing to take time out of your schedule to come on the podcast to share the layers of heart and soul and courage and processing and decision-making that go into the creation of your work and for being willing to open the window and let us in on what it's like to be an artist who functions at the intersection of race and community. I can't wait to share this conversation with you, and I look forward to connecting with you after the show. See you soon. Drake. Hi, Crystal. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome to the space between us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So I'm really excited to talk with you for a number of reasons. Um, One of which is I think you are the first um, really established artist who has... (laughs) Sophia, really? <laughs> Who has come on the show? Like I'm I'm looking at the little sort of logo thing that you have on Skype and I'm like, wow, this is art. Like I feel like we need to have a conversation about that. How did you stumble into what you do, which is obviously directly connected to the way that we've met? Ooh, well, that image in particular comes from a series of uh, fake magazine covers that I've been working on for about four years now. And um, the actual idea for that magazine cover, uh, for that fake magazine in and of itself, came up in uh, 2000, I believe. I was reading, this was when I was still at the University of Georgia, and I was reading an article in, I think it was an issue of Vanity Fair, where they did a spread on Sierra Leone. And there was, an, there was this long article, of course, dealing with um, the uprising and all these massacres and stuff. And on the cover of the magazine was this real stark photograph of this guy who had been attacked by machete-wielding thugs, and he had the scars on his face and, and mm. stuff. And so mm. at that, when I saw that image, it immediately made me think about, you know, all these claims of um, virility and masculinity and how that was tied to to violence and, of course, you know, um, the way that, you know, black men are seen in society, whether it be in Africa or in America, and what that had to do with authenticity, mm-hmm. especially in, particular in, in the hip-hop uh, context. And so I thought, well, you know, what if I came up with a, a, a magazine that kind of de- deals with this um, this 
irony and of course the hypocrisy associated with this idea about masculinity and violence being need to be associated with each other and how we have these individuals that are creating um, careers crafted on all these false narratives about who they are, you know, as 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 individuals out in this fictional world that they exist in in the street. You know, everybody wanted to be studio thugs, as the term used to be. And so I said, well, I'll call the magazine Blackout. Um, and of course, yeah, that was in, in 1999 and 2000. And of course, that was this is that's where it stopped. And once I moved to Louisiana, and I was trying to just find something to something to do in between all the other pieces that I was working on. And because I teach Photoshop classes, I said, well, maybe I'll just start sketching out some stuff in Photoshop and we'll see where it goes from there. And so that was how the the Blackout magazine finally came into existence. Mm -hmm. And so this in particular, that that image in particular is for one of the the volumes uh, with the subtitle uh, Black to the Future. And um, it just has an image of me with a bunch of miscellaneous things that I, I made over years thrown on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and an image of Sun Ra and George Clinton and uh, or some um, um, Congo cosmology mm-hmm. and some other things, you know, tossed in for good measure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the image came from. It was it was the the, um, the, the conclusion of, of one of the conclusions of an idea that I had. In 1999 or 2000. Is there a place online where listeners can take a look at the art that you've created and specifically what you just described? Sure. Um, they can go to akaprofessordavis.com. Okay. We'll make sure that we put um, a link in um, to the show notes as well for people. Um, so you... You and I met because you were curating a show here in Athens. That's how we actually connected. Would you be willing to talk a bit about the show and how that came about? Sure. Um, Well, the show was another random idea that I had. I'd I'd been saying for years that I wanted to try to to curate another exhibition. The first show that I ever curated was at Athica, actually. And I was wrapping up grad school. And um, Lizzie... Uh, Zucker Saltz contacted me to see if I'd be interested in curating a show and uh, we talked about some ideas and so we, we settled on um, on the title Race Inter uh, Personal Politics Enter E-N-T-E-R Personal Politics mm-hmm. and we sent out a national uh, call and got a, a wide selection of work from California to upstate New York and of course stuff from Athens and that was my first endeavor in curating and you know, at that point, it was obvious to me that you know, if art is about initiating conversations, then of course, uh, curatorial duties allows you to you know to expand on that conversation in a way that you know just being an artist in the show doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so, I want to try to solicit a lot of works that help would help to broaden the either the definition and or the understanding of what uh, blackness and majesty and fantasy are and could be. And so I wanted to make sure that I didn't put too fine of a point on the artist call because I wanted to leave space for the for the potential artist to interpret, you know, what they thought that that the title meant and and then submit the work from there. And I think we were, you know, fairly successful in the work that was submitted uh, as a as a broad and uh, deep, you know, representation of all these different interpretations of of of, um, of blackness. Mm-hmm. And how did, so how did all of that end up 
being connected to what was the title of your show? Was it Capturing the Black Fantastic? What was the uh, Picturing the Black Fantastic? Picturing the Black Fantastic. So, how did that experience connect to the show that you you recently curated here? Well, um, that was the show that I curated. The other um, show that I was um, featured in was the the uh, anniversary show for Got the it. artist collective that I'm okay and. That's the the Us show. That was the the show that was running um, concurrently with it. Okay. And Us is the artist collective that started um, at the University of Georgia in 1997, 1998. And we started, you know, as a lot of artist collectives do, because we were a bunch of people that had, had similar ideas about things we wanted to do creatively, but primarily because we were all, you know, students of color who for whatever reason, didn't really fit into a lot of the different types of, of, of programming that, that existed at Lamar Dodd at that period of time. And so we found um, a faculty mentor in Marie Cochran, who was on staff there at that time. And, you know, she initiated us in the ways of, of uh, community activity and, um, you know, promoting the, the artwork and also using our creative abilities to uh, talk about things that we we felt needed to be addressed, not only in Athens, but also on campus at the University of Georgia and Lamar Dodd in and of itself, but also respective to, you know, to our peers. And so out of that came the Us uh, Arts Collective, which was founded also in part uh, in honor of Miss Darlene Killian. Okay. So I would, I would like us to sort of backtrack a bit because... There is so much content in what you are sh- what you are sharing, and there's so much experience in what you're sharing. And I know that for a lot of listeners, this will literally be their first introduction um, into a world that you have been navigating for quite some time. And what you something that you said in the beginning really got my attention. You talked about navigating life at the intersection of expectation, being black, being male, being human, and the stories about violence. And Mm -hmm. what I'm wondering is how are you navigating that? How do you begin to find a way to find your way through that? You know, the funny thing is that I was literally just listening to um, a podcast where they were interviewing this author who uh, was an African-American man from uh, Dallas, I believe he said he's from, um, graduated from Yale. I think his name is Gerard Casey. I'm probably messing up his name because I just listened to it like five minutes minutes ago. But he was addressing some of the the similar concerns. And he graduated from Yale, and he said he still felt like he was out of place Mm -hmm. and that it was expected from him to be this token that was representative of black people in this kind of broader totality. And he, he came to the realization that out of all the accolades and experience that he amassed, that he was still, you know, a marginalized person. He just happened to have a degree from Yale Mm -hmm. and he still happened to deal with all the issues associated with violence. So the perceptions associated with blackness with regard to stereotypes, regardless of, you know, wherever he went and who knew him, that it was still this kind of, you know, this, this cloud that followed him. And so he suggested uh, that, you know, the, artwork, whatever that form may be, should challenge those notions, you know, for people that hold the stereotypes and people that feel like they embody the stereotypes, so have to deal with them, that we should all be speaking truth to power 
with the work that we make. And that's something that I've been saying in my head for years because I never really felt like the work that I make personally has been as direct and or um, explicit as it should be hmm. because I've received admonitions from professors <laughs> plenty of times from undergrad through graduate school that you don't you want to make sure that you're not being too didactic in your work which is you know intellectually makes plenty of sense and I understand that you don't want to beat the viewer of the head but you know with regard to certain issues especially in the in the political climate that we exist in now there are sometimes that you should probably be a little bit more forceful in the messages that you're trying to get across and so I'm still even at 43 years old trying to figure out for myself how to address you know these topics and how to deal with them in a much more efficient and a more much more forthright way, and I guess the the short answer is that I don't really really know it. Sometimes I think I hit it on the head, and sometimes I, I feel like I missed the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still navigating all that space myself. Yeah, I think the main thing is that I always I try to make sure that you know at least it, it, in the initial you know phase of me planning whatever the work is that I'm. I'm trying to make sure that I'm being truthful and and not waver. And I know that, you know, the messaging that we're we're trying to get out with the work, whatever that 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 message may be, is always, you know, um, has to be respectful and uh, considerate of the potential audience that's going to engage with the work. If you want the work to speak to the people, then you have to figure out how to talk to them. And so you can't just, you know, be heavy-handed all the time. But you should always, you know, aim to make sure that people are, you know, given space to understand sincerity if you're coming across, regardless of that, the message is something that they can they can truly, you know, understand um, straight uh, off the top of their initial viewing of the work or interaction with the work. So I'm still trying to, to figure it out. You know, it's, it's uh, that's part of the bigger bigger struggle. You know, for some artists, is is subject matter for some artists is material and technique. Uh, for me, it's you know still trying to figure out how to how to talk about my personal experience and just you know the, as I said the broader experience of being black or being a black man in America and have people understand that it's, this is not you know a superficial um, you know um, addressing of the of the of the issue that these are persistent issues um, that that. We, we carry around with us and sometimes it just kind of feels like background noise but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not something that doesn't need to be addressed in the work or in just you know general conversation with you know friends and peers so i'm i'm hearing you say that i'm hearing you say that it's a real struggle um that's i guess the thing underneath all of it that it's a real struggle to figure out how to find you in the middle of all yes. of the stories and then on top of that, as you're in the process of finding you, figuring out how as an artist to convey what it is like to have the experience of you, because we yes. as a culture don't really have spaces where we seem to really value that experience. Exactly. And uh, because we're talking about, you know, quote unquote art with a mm-hmm. capital A is you know, they're different expectations of what that art is supposed to look and sound like. If you're talking about, you know, the um, the higher education, academia interpretation of art, 
you know, there's a certain kind of aesthetic that goes along with that, and I, I feel that that impedes people being able to to really express themselves with regard to serious subject matter when it comes to talking about being a person of color, or being, you know, um, a member of the LGBTQ community, or being a woman, or whatever it is, the things that politicians want to label as identity politics, you know. But you know, it's I can't imagine that an artist can can effectively and truthfully make work that is personal to them without talking about how they experience the world and the way they walk through it. Not to say that it's everything, but it's hard to to make work that deals with feminism if you're not talking about the experiences that you, that you have as a woman walking down the street every day mm-hmm. or as a person of color, right? And so I think that a lot of interpretations of what art is don't allow for those kind of nuances because people want things to fit into a certain kind of aesthetic program. And so everything winds up being kind of homogeneic after a while is that you, know, you can't really d- detect, you know, who made what and what kind of uh, emotional, you know, um, conveyance people are trying to get across in the work. It's just everything starts to feel the same uh, in a lot of in a lot of respects. And so I know that the struggle that I have trying to figure out how to address you know, being a black man in America who makes art is the same kind of struggle that other you know people that may be marginalized deal with when they're trying to make stuff as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always doing the juggling thing. You know, how can I make something that's going to speak to people that also speaks to the people that look and sound like me that have certain kinds of experiences as I do that may still fit within the art historical canon <laughs> and, and would look good on someone's wall mm-hmm. or in someone's space. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you make something that, that satisfies all those requirements? This is so um, this is so incredibly layered um, because as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing the piece of what we talked about, you know, figuring out how to find you within the stories that exist. But then I'm also hearing that you're wrestling with the stories that are attached to you because of the body that you were born into. So how do you figure out how to navigate a world where you're having to search for you and then you're having to navigate the stories that are being attached to you. And then in the middle of all of that, needing to figure out how to actually articulate your story. And then the additional complexity of the fact that you're an artist means that this is literally how you survive and make a living. And the pressure of navigating all of that it feels overwhelming to me listening to you describe it. Am I misunderstanding it? No, it can it can be very overwhelming. Okay, <laughs> and I, I try not to, as I, I know that a lot of you know my peers try not to make so much of it because we have other things that we do that feed into the creation of the work. Mm-hmm. But most of the artists that were featured in the show that I curated, as well as the the show. Um, you know, president accounted for that my my artist collective uh, presented at at the Linden House. You know, we're all, for the most part, educators that are dealing with trying to help people find their own creative voice. And we're a lot of us, if not the majority of us, are still doing work in and around the community mm-hmm. that are trying to bridge the same kind of gaps that we're trying to bridge at the University of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're not necessarily moving mountains, but you know, when you're, when you're trying to talk about, you know, get people to a space place where they can, they can have a conversation with people that they've never had before mm-hmm. that may potentially get them to shed, you know, bigoted ideas or just to get them, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a space where they can be comfortable enough to be themselves, they can open up to other people, 
if that winds up being, you know, you know, kind of taxing, especially when you're talking about trying to do your own creative thing mm-hmm. at the same time. And I, I realized that, you know, it's more of a challenge for people to acknowledge because being an educator is the, the same kind of thing you're in the classroom all the time is that, you know, you're teaching students the, you know, the, the background to the, to the uh, subject matter. You're trying to get them to understand, you know, the, the historicity, uh, the historicity of the material, the methodology, what they may have to do with the work that they're going to make. And then at the same time, you're, you're trying to retain some of that, <laughs> that energy for yourself and it's it's the same thing with you're know, trying to get people to have these these uh these deep um and you know self-reflective conversations uh that you, know, you can be psychically draining and then how do you how do you replace yourself when it's time to go into the studio mm-hmm. to try to your own story mm-hmm. i um so i actually i actually very much relate to um a great deal of what you're describing because um there is there are like really specific challenges that are associated with creating and holding spaces where many different types of people can belong mm-hmm. and when i hear you describe the process of creating art and of curating the shows that you curate i hear that as being one of the underlying goals is how do we create something that exists in the world that draws many different types of people and really engages them, right? So not like exactly. in a superficial way, but like actually engages them. And that that work is extremely layered and extremely nuanced. And I don't know if it's something that we yet have decided to place a priority on as a culture. Um, yeah. So it can be very invisible, while being very draining, while at the same time being extremely necessary. And I think I think part of what is coming to the surface for me as I'm connecting with what you're sharing is it, honestly, it saddens me often. Um, so, so I'm in the middle of writing right now. And um, I wrote uh, probably about two paragraphs yesterday but sort of map out how we typically have conversations about race in the public fora. So mm-hmm. what usually happens is a public figure says something that people consider either horrific or racist or offensive or otherwise disturbing. Then once this public statement is made, there's like this volcanic eruption of emotion and there's mm-hmm. like this public outcry. Okay, well, this public figure said this thing, and 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 it's not okay that they said this thing. And so then we all sort of start screaming. Then we kind of, as the public, break into one of two camps. Camp one is, well, yes, um, this might have been problematic, but how was this person supposed to know that this was problematic? And maybe we're all just overreacting, and maybe we just need to put the past behind us and move on. And then camp two is like, well, hold on. What about the pain that we've been living with all this time? Why can't we actually figure out a way to have this conversation? Meanwhile, public mm-hmm. figure ends up being public, like punished in some way, right? So they monetarily or they lose a job or just something happens to punish, you know, the public figure. And then we have now screamed past each other successfully. Nothing has connected. As soon as the punishment is handed down, our attention turns to something else. And then we just kind of wait around until the next eruption happens. And exactly. we're not actually doing 
the work that's required in order to figure out how to have a real conversation. And it is exhausting us as the public because I don't think that's what we're actually looking for. I actually think that we really are craving connection, like genuinely. I think that's why people would come to the show that you curated. I think that's why people would listen in to a podcast like this. I think that's why there are some people out there who want to hire me or read what I write. It's because we really are craving human connection, but the pattern that we have when we enter into the public fora in an attempt to have this dialogue is really detached from the reality of how we function as humans. So then the work that you're describing is figuring out how to put down like every single individual slot of the bridge. You know what I mean? So like the, the bridge is meant to yeah. connect us so that we can journey through together. And we're kind of looking at each other and pretending like all the individual slots in the bridge are actually already in place, but they're not. There's actual work involved of figuring out, okay, so we need to put this here and we need to put that there. And if people like you don't engage in the work, then we actually won't have spaces where we're even forced to become aware that we haven't done the work in the first place. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, you said it. I was just regurgitating it. So thank you for sharing it. (laughs) (laughs) What do you love, Drake? What do I love? Um, uh, well, there are many things that I love. You know, when I saw those questions, I was like, Lord, my students are probably laughing because they're getting their revenge. <laughs> I, I give um, the Proust, the Proust, Proust, is it Proust or Proust? Questionnaire, uh, Marcel Proust uh, questionnaire is part of the final project for the computer design class, which is a series of, I don't know, 20 something questions that are very existential, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably more existential than undergrads want to deal with, but it makes them be more reflective. Mm-hmm. And then of course I'm saying all this to say that when I saw your question, what do you love and what do you hate? And I was like, oh, I don't know. How, how am I supposed to answer this? <laughs> there, there's, there's one thing. There's, there's never one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love I love a lot of things uh, sincerely because um, I'm a cancer, which I tend not to to put a lot of weight on astrology. But uh, there are some things about um, the, the the cancer astro- astrological sign that seem to fit me to a T. And I've known that before I ever actually read what it meant to be a cancer. But I I love family. Um, mm. I love like peace. You know, like actual peace and quiet mm-hmm. because I'm from the country. I'm from mm-hmm. Monroe, Georgia. Mm-hmm. So I know what real peace sounds like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I know how necessary that is, you know, not for the creative process, but also for the human mind, you know, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that more you know, now that I've you know been working since forever and I'm always active, you know, and you can you can tell when things are still yeah. and you can you can go and have a chance to replenish yeah. uh, yourself. So, you know, and I get a lot of that replenishment from, you know, friends and family and friends that are family mm-hmm. is that, you know, in lieu of the of the quietness when you can get, you know, some noise and laughter around you that, you know, that fills you up mm-hmm. and lets you know that you know, there are people that have been on this you that, you know, they give you something that you can feed off of, mm-hmm. you know, um, I love that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also love coffee. <laughs> and, you know that, that that comes from that comes from family too. So, <laughs> but I love you. Know, I love creating. Obviously, there's something about 
art that you know satisfies something that other things just can't and it's for people that are not creative it's kind of hard to explain you know even for people that you know appreciate the arts they I, there are a lot of people that appreciate the arts that always say that but i can't do it and you know they i understand what they mean because there's something about being in that mode where you're making a thing you know when you're creating a problem in your head and you're trying to figure out how you're going to solve it and then the thing comes to fruition and there's something that is satisfied in the manifestation of that thing not just in in sharing it with people but in the process of working it working it out mm-hmm. and so I, I love that because you know you know i think i've done anything else you know as a career but nothing would satisfy me as much as being an artist and or you know an educator there's something that 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 hits, you know, that that other things just can't come close to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say that you love creating spaces for belonging for you and the people around you. Yes, because I know that people need that, and you know, with regard to the kind of work that I make, you know, I never, well, I don't think I intended to make it. I've always been a creative person. In part because of you know my family members guided me in a particular kind of direction mm-hmm. because I have a lot of creativity in my family, but I never thought that I would be making the kind of work that I make because I was influenced by comic books and album covers. But I, I know now that it was the music that I was listening to that's partially important, <laughs> um, partially responsible for the kind of work that I make because I grew up listening to a bunch of you know Public Enemy and mm-hmm. NWA and mm-hmm. they lost so and stuff like that so you get these varying interpretations of social responsibility mm-hmm. and you know these uh, investigations of what's happening in the community even coming from Monroe Georgia you know there the are things that were happening in the early 1980s you know that you know of course were a mirror of what was happening you know up the road in Atlanta mm-hmm. and I saw the fallout of so much of that you know happening you know in Monroe with a bunch of friends that were my age or a little bit younger that were caught up in, you know, violence or drug activity and, you know, shootouts in hospitals and mm. all types of crazy you would never imagine happening in Monroe, Georgia. But that's when I knew that, you know, the world was really connected in a way that people just weren't <laughs> willing to acknowledge because so much of everything on TV said that this is an urban problem. Mm-hmm. And Monroe, Georgia is <laughs> not even remotely urban, even, you know, in this this state of, you know, 2018 with all the growth that it's had, mm-hmm. it's still a rural place but you know the issues that touch everywhere else touch Monroe in the same way and I think that you know because of the influence of of you know the hip-hop that I was listening to and other types of music that I was listening to it, it kind of planted seeds that I if I was going to make work that I needed to make work that was going to be you know a response to what I saw happening mm-hmm. around me mm-hmm. and and I kind of folded in you know eventually you know socio-political concerns broader in, in scope because as you stated I want to try to make sure that you know people that I held deal were represented in the kind of work that I make and also to be able to use that work as a space for you know initiating conversations mm-hmm. I wound up um, having a, um, a a member of my undergraduate cohort when we were doing our our senior exit mm-hmm. um and defenses, and he told me that you know my folks came to the show, and you know we're from South Georgia, and mm-hmm. there are these 
diehard bigots and they loved your work and he mm. said he said they made you made them feel something they never felt before mm. and at first I, I thought that <laughs> I misheard what he said because you know that was the thing I expected from anyone in that class especially about the work that I, that I made because you know even as, as an undergrad I knew that you know it I didn't have the, the most worldly view mm-hmm. of socio-political concern but I knew how I felt about where I was living and you know how I came to be, you know, a student at the University of Georgia, mm-hmm. and Lamar died at a period of time. And for him to say that, you know, his parents had a moment of realization just based off that work, mm-hmm. made me realize that it could be used as a, as a tool. And so from there, I started to be, you know, much more conscientious and and you know the types of images that I wanted to try to 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 display with that particular kind of work, but also try to fine tune the message. Mm-hmm. And so I want writing a column for the Athens Banner Herald mm. uh, shortly thereafter. And that was because, number one, I have an interest in writing, but I knew that, that you know images just weren't enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so if you weren't going to include text in the artwork, then you should find another way to use language to try to reach people. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I, you know, I, I took to writing the column, and I tried to make sure that whenever... You know, I'm crafting my statements for the work that I put out that I, I try to make sure that, you know, there isn't any any real room for doubt as to, you know, what I'm trying to get across and what I want people to, to come away from the work with. Because mm-hmm. I want people to know that, you know, this is the this is the subject matter that I'm addressing. These are the challenges that I'm addressing. And this is what I would like for you, the viewer, to try to help, you know, you know, us as a collective, you know, society, you know, try to figure out how to. How to solve mm-hmm. and and digest work, and then taking it back to people that you think should sit or discussing it with. Mm-hmm. How do you um, how do you how do you cultivate responsiveness in the face of feeling like your story is being forgotten? Because when I when I hear you talk about um, presenting at that show as a senior. And and having your colleague, you know, your classmate come up to you and say, you know, your work has had a really strong impact on my parents. It is actually shifting the way that they see the world. And then you choosing to respond to that by saying in your own words, I, I had to be more conscientious after that point. And I began to realize the power of my work. How do you stay connected and responsive instead of going towards sort of becoming detached and distant from that process in the face of what you endure just navigating the world in your body? Uh, believe you me, I've tried on more than one occasion not to make work <laughs> about stuff. <laughs> you know, I said, you know, this is the last X that I'm going to make. This is the last Y that I'm going to make. And, of course, that's never the way that it works out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the stories are there. and <laughs> They have to be told. You know, it's um, it, 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 it's never going to end until I've exhausted every possible option with regard to how to address, you know, the, the issues that, that keep coming up. And that's why the work keeps happening is because, you know, is the, the the conversation isn't over yet. And so it's not really up to me. I learned, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just a matter of, of, of being there when the work needs to, to happen. So I try to try to leave, you know, for the, for the ideas to, to germinate and to absorb what is happening around me mm-hmm. with regard to the news, with regard to 
some of my students' lives and how they're seeing things or not seeing things, and try to figure out how I can how I can address that in the works that I'm planning or the works that I'm intending to plan, so that I can use each one of those things as some sort of teachable moment. Um, I wound up stumbling across a quote by W.B. Du Bois from uh, the Criteria for Negro Art that I always use at the beginning of every uh, semester. And, of course, writing about you know artists working during the Harlem Renaissance and in conjunction with you know stuff that Al Lang was doing with regard to the Town of the Tenth. But you know, uh, Du Bois states pretty explicitly that you know he sees art uh, as a as a form of social propaganda mm-hmm. that should be used as a tool for elevation, and you know that's something that you know folds into what I you know been thinking about, of course, since undergrad and before undergrad, listening to Public Enemy is that you know the the artist has a responsibility to the community that the work is going to circulate in, mm-hmm. and you know I know a lot of a lot of my peers and a lot of my mentors and professors, you know, kind of scoff at that because, you know, they say that the artist's responsibility is to him or herself only. And, you know, I can I can understand that train of thought because you have to make the work. But, you know, we're, the particular subject matter that I deal with and some of my peers deal with, we we all seem to acknowledge that we do have a responsibility mm-hmm. to the to that are going to interact with the work. And so, you know, that's what I carry with me. It's a, it's a privilege, you know, to, to kind of have that responsibility, even if one, no one's saying it explicitly, that this is what we, we expect from you. But, you know, that's what I, I imagine every time I sit down to get ready to work on something like that people are looking for something that they can, they can, you know, that they can replenish themselves with and they can learn from and that they can build on it. It's not just about making art art's sake, not just making things that are, are aesthetically pleasing, mm-hmm. you know, that'll that in, when they're cropped and put in art history books, but to make something that's going to you know move people hmm. um, and, and and give them something that they can they can take away uh, with them, and so those are the kind of things that you know replenish me because I'm always thinking about that. You know how hmm. how is this going to how is this going to not only be reflective of me and you know who I say I am as an artist and what I've learned and who taught me all those people that, you know, that fed into me, but how is this going to, you know, you know, be of use to people? Do you think that it's possible to create art that does what you have just described, um, that moves people and connects with their, their being or their soul, um, or their essence and not, be in the journey of sort of constantly ex- exploring your own personal truth. Like, do you, do you think it's possible to create art that moves without being willing to do that inner work that so many of us avoid? Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know. <laughs> Is it possible? I think, I guess a, a well, I don't know. That's a tough one, because I assume that you know the work that I make, even if people aren't responding specifically to to the issue of uh, I don't know Confederate flags or uh, police brutality, that there's some personal experience that that is maybe not necessarily comparable, but that triggers some sort of res- emotional response that reminds them of when they may have been 
you know, uh, challenged unjustly or marginalized that gives them space to kind of acknowledge that. Um, so I, I think, you know, even if you know, the work is pared down so that it's not specifically, um, you know, drawn from uh, an explicitly personal place that it kind of it kind of forces people to try to understand where I'm coming from, that, you know, people that are intending to to engage artwork usually have some sort of you know internal uh, need to seek out that that kind of work mm-hmm. or to seek out art period that that will, will help them uh to to move to another place that winds up being cathartic in a way that they need did i answer your question i think you did i think that i'm hearing you say that when we interact with art, we often tend to find what we're looking for. So yes. the what the artist creates is essentially an invitation for us to look. <laughs> um, exactly. To look into the art and to look within ourselves. And um, I don't know if we, you know, as the looker, you know, as a person who's not creating it, I don't know if the artist, I don't know if I need to see inside of the artist. I know that sounds strange, Um, but I think maybe that's part of the service that you're describing of what you provide as an artist is that you're not actually putting yourself at the center. You're creating spaces where the people engaging with your art can put themselves at the center so that we can see ourselves in a new light and then decide how we want to interact with what you've created. Um, yeah, that's the that's the aim. That's the aim. Because the idea of modernism, part of the idea of modernism is that you know the work is not purely about you know just the artist making the stuff, but mm-hmm. the the viewer has to acknowledge their role in activating the artwork. Right? That you acknowledge you're bringing your personal experiences to the to the space when you're standing in front of the thing and you're trying to figure out what it is and why why it does or does not mean something to you. Mm-hmm. And so in that, you have to mind all those you know personal, emotional experiences that help you or should help you understand you know what it is that you're looking at and why you're responding to it in the way that you do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know part of the things that you know a lot of people that go to galleries, museums, <laughs> you know never really never really think about because they're expecting that the art is supposed to give them something instantaneously mm. they don't think about there's a there's a as a psychological emotional chemical thing that's mm-hmm. happening when you're looking at that thing that you know you're you're going through a process of trying to figure out what's happening there mm-hmm. that you know, the art isn't telling you what to think well sometimes it does but you know, usually the art isn't you know, telling you explicitly what to think you know you as you said you there's space in there for you the viewer mm-hmm. to try to nap and then you know through the process you're creating the artwork anew mm-hmm. and trying to understand as you're looking at you know i've never had a conversation about art in this way i'm really glad that we're having this conversation because there is an element of personal responsibility that i think maybe i sensed as i would look at art but i never i never quite could put my finger on what it was I felt like I was needing to make this choice between am I going to engage in the process of like letting this piece draw me out, you know, Mm. or am I going to look at the piece, judge it and move on or judge it and dismiss it? 
And this conversation that we're having right now is educating me. This conversation is educating me on multiple levels. But this piece of the conversation right now is educating me about how I want to move into and through artistic spaces. I want to have an awareness that I'm making some conscious decisions about whether or not I'm going to engage with the invitation that's being extended to me. Um, Maybe the passive consumption of art is something that perhaps we need to sort of toss to the side. Um, It's not, it's not passive. It's interactive. It's a conversation. Um, Exactly. Yeah. What do you, well, that's what I try to, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Now this is part of what, you know, we try to get across the students in art appreciation class, you know, um, is that, you know, part of the responsibility, of course, is you're acknowledging that, you know, you know, you are engaging in this, this exchange when, when we talk about, about art, you know, people select certain types of books or movies or mm-hmm. fashion designers or cars and stuff on uh, with a reason, you know, because there's something in that that particular kind of work that speaks to you, whether it be on an aesthetic level or an emotional level, or you know, or any combination of those things. And so it's not just because you woke up one day and you had you know a closet full of you know uh, Adidas or Nike. It's, mm-hmm. There's something about the way those things are constructed that speaks to you, that resonates with to you, and and satisfies something inside you. And so, you know, with regard to the way that we think about aesthetics, you know, we are, we acknowledge that there has to be an inverse, mm-hmm. that if we find something beautiful, then there are things that we think are not beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so why we, why are we responding in the ways that we do when we listen to, read, or see, or hear things that we find objectionable? Mm-hmm. You know, where does it come from? And how does that factor into what we think is good or bad art or, you know, art in a, in a broad sense? And so that's that, you know, that's the way that you know we approach art appreciation, and you know usually you know students get it within the context of the class, and also mm-hmm. you know on a on a larger you know scale mm-hmm. on a on a macro scale, but you know sometimes they don't mm-hmm. <laughs> until after they've had the class and then they come back because it's not just about paintings. You know the paintings and stuff are 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 an encapsulation of where society was at that period of time when mm-hmm. people were dealing with certain issues. And it's supposed to be, you know, just a reflection of, of, you know, the artist's thoughts about what was happening then. And in that, you can kind of get a sense of, you know, you know, society's, you know, mores and standards and concerns and how that may or may not be reflective of where we are and the society that we exist in in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when students are open and willing to go down that path and they can get us, they can get a sense of, you know, what we're trying to, trying to get across in the, in the course with uh, art appreciation, not just to, you know, to have some sort of revisionist approach, mm-hmm. you know, to, to things from 2000 years ago and, and try to put, you know, those, those people that are making that work that are depicted in those paintings and sculptures in our shoes, but to put ourselves in their potential shoes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think maybe like that last piece of what you said in particular, I think that maybe that is one of the, maybe the biggest, I don't know, hidden powers of art is the ability to help us step out of our own shoes and into someone else's, um, which is an actual learned skill, as you just described, you know, students, they have a choice. I mean, a student can choose to engage and, you know, go down the path of 
cultivating that skill where we can sort of sit back and kind of rock back in who we are um, and believe that our perspective is the only perspective that ought to exist in the world. But in the process, we cut ourselves off um, from Mm -hmm. understanding the humans around us. And so it does come at a really high price. Um, What do you hate, Drake? Uh, (laughs) I knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. What do I hate? Um, I hate willful ignorance. Mm. (laughs) I I had to think about this. Um, Well, I didn't really have to think about it because it's something that is always on my mind, especially, and not just just because I'm an educator. It's just always been something that has always bothered me, you know, because I guess because of my curious nature that I just assumed that other people were curious too. Mm -hmm. Like, how can you... Like not wondering about things, you know. How, why do people always? So many people seem to uh, be willing to accept things at face value, mm-hmm. and I know I know the answers, but you know it it it, it bothers me that, that there's so much of that still that you know people are happy to live in their perfectly constructed bubbles that <laughs> that, that that don't allow them to be challenged. And the, the thing that really scares me is that I see so much of that in younger generations. Mm-hmm. You know that. That was the thing that I was not expecting when when uh, I started teaching it. I was mm-hmm. like, "All right, well, I'm I'm back in academia. I'm gonna be teaching on the grads. And they're gonna be wide eyed and full of wonder, and everybody's <laughs> gonna be to engage, and they're gonna ask questions. And it's like, you know, I, I could literally set myself on fire in class, and maybe two students would say, Mr. Davis, you're on fire.' Mm. But everybody else kind of they would just you know they gone about their business." You know, and I think the with regard to you know talking about race, the the thing that always resonates with me is that I see so many young people who seem to be, you know, uh, reinvesting themselves, or I should shouldn't say reinvesting, but investing themselves in these real um, old school entrenched ideas about about race and class that you know their great grandparents probably held, mm-hmm. and it's the the kind of thing that always throws me for a loop because I remember sitting in high school and it seems like. Everyone in my cohort, regardless of what their race was, you know, always you know, we always kind of seemed to, to believe that when the old guard died off, mm. that everything would be fine. And it's, of course, we know that the old guard never dies off. The old mm. guard babysits the grandchildren, and they instill those ideas into the grandchildren. The grandchildren grow up and have kids, mm-hmm. and they keep instilling those same ideas unless you know they come into a situation that challenges them. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, that's that's the thing that, that bothers me. And, of course, it bothers me on an artistic level, mm-hmm. you know, because I see so many students that don't push beyond their boundaries and they become stagnant. And then they wonder why, you know, they're they're not you know, achieving or experiencing the kind of exposure or success that they want. And I'm like, well, you're not doing anything to grow. You just keep making the same work over and over and over again. And you're not trying to engage different audiences to you know, give them a chance to offer you feedback. You know, you you're constructing a bubble <laughs> that allows you uh, to believe that everything is okay with what you're doing, and you're going to be doing the same thing until you decide to break out of that bubble. And of course, we know that applies to you know politics and mm-hmm. religion as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's the thing that that bothers me. And it's also something that you know I deal with on a on a personal level too. Going back to you know trying to make the the work be what I think it needs to be. You know, I'm trying to chip out of my own little you know personal bubbles mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. so this um my brain is spinning so um ah uh, boy 
I don't often find myself in a place where I just don't have anything that I can say at this moment, but this is one of those places. So listeners, you know, <laughs> welcome to the first one. But um, <laughs> I um, I think I'm really struck by what you said um, on a number of levels, levels for a number of reasons. And if I'm being totally frank, I think the first one is actually um, at a very personal level because... Um, the work of not getting pigeonholed into a specific bubble, and I'll use this podcast as an example, um, the work of doing that is actual work. And I don't use yeah. those words to sound redundant. I use them because they're the best words that I have right now. It actually takes like an extraordinary amount of effort to make sure that I'm not only having conversations with a certain type of person whatever type of person that might be, uh, whether it's race, socioeconomics, politics, um, gender, um, you know, background, all of it, all of it, it takes work. And I think that, I think the only reason that I have any of this, uh, awareness or willingness to do the work is because I understand what it feels like not to belong. Mm hmm. And, and I mean, like at multiple levels, <laughs> uh, this is not a therapy session, so I'm not going to dive into all levels, um, but, but I understand not belonging and I've understood it and lived it from a really, really young age. And I kind of hit this patch in my, um, twenties where I, it's a gross oversimplification, but it was kind of like a fork in the road, like, I got I got really bitter for a while and and either I was going to keep going down that road or I was going to embrace discovery and be willing to run towards that which I did not know. And that choice was and remains a fairly terrifying choice. But part of the value of it is that I have had to learn how to cultivate belonging within myself so that mm-hmm. when I go out into the world, I'm not demanding that a person give me belonging before I give it back to them. And exactly. that's a necessary prerequisite for me so that I don't go about the process of attempting to create my bubble of belonging. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I'm hearing you describe in your students. Oh yeah, that's exactly it. And you know, you know, changing geographic locations, of course, heightens that awareness, especially mm-hmm. when you're when you're in an area that is not nearly as cosmopolitan <laughs> as mm-hmm. as Athens, Georgia is. You know, there's a there's a small segment of the population here that has a, has similar ideological or political leanings as I do not to say that, you know, that's, those are the only people that I surround myself with, mm-hmm. but you know, the people that could act as a, as a sounding board just to make sure that I'm not being crazy and hypersensitive about, about certain things, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that segment of the population is real thin in, in this section of Louisiana. So, you know, as you said, you have to always be cognizant of being willing to step out of, outside of that space, but not placing yourself in a position where you have, where your interaction with other people mandates that you always have to you know prove your humanity before mm-hmm. you can have them. 
And that's one of the things that I'm always trying to, you know, get students to understand and also remind myself of on a daily basis because, you know, you know, I, I, of course, because of the nature of my work that I do want to try to be the bridge builder, but, you know, I can't, you know, educate, you know, people you know, of 400 years of American history in five minutes before we mm-hmm. can have a conversation about what the work is about. And, you know, mm-hmm. if, as I said, if I have to prove my humanity to you and why certain things are you know, wrong with the way society is structured and the way, you know, people of color are being treated in America, then we're going to have a hard time, <laughs> you know, getting, getting to the substance of what we really need to be talking about. And some people, you know, are obstinate or, you know, just being a contrarian and don't want to have those, those, you know, particular parts of the conversation. And so things get, get stymied uh, at that moment, but other people are not, you know, so reticent and, and they're, and their uh, behavior, and so we can we can br- build some bridges from there. And I've I've been fortunate to build a, a few, mm-hmm. but you know, and it's not just because of the South. I think it's just you know you know a reflection of where society is that so many people are just so polarized. But a lot of folks just aren't willing to go down that road because they don't want to be challenged, because it you know means that they have to start deconstructing so many things they've already you know built up in their head or things that have been built in their head. And we do it to ourselves, and as you said, you know, we have to we have to save ourselves so that we can save others. I think there's, um, I think that um, this is going to sound really weird, but um, I think that um, I think that there's like an underlying fear of rejection and not belonging that sometimes drives us to believe that in order to belong, we need to exclude. Mm -hmm. And I'm still in process of unpacking, you know, this idea. So I, I don't know that I'll be able to sort of, you know, go much deeper than that, but I'm hearing, I'm hearing that thread in what you're, you're saying, because so, so in my, in my life, um, there's the work that I do, which I love, and then there's the ways in which um, I'm called to live out what I am attempting to do in my life. And there are relationships in my life where I end up needing to make a call, and the call ends up being, am I willing to journey through with this person, or am I not? And there are certain prerequisites that I tend to look for um, or, and are necessary for me to be able to endure. And one of them is mutual respect and mutual dignity. And both of those are tied to the awareness and acknowledgement that we share a common humanity. Mm-hmm. Because without the establishment of, of that thread... There, I, at least as up to this point, I have not been able to find an alternative path in that establishes enough commonality to even be able to begin. Exactly. So, if we're not presuming that we possess common human common humanity, then then pain has no context. You know, mm-hmm. um, belonging has no context. Connection has no context. History itself literally has no context if we're not presuming that we share a common humanity and that is a conversation that i think we may just be creeping up to the boundary of beginning to have as a society Mm -hmm. um and i'm hopeful that we'll be willing to engage that conversation because that commonality i think is fairly essential um what brings you joy drake huh 
Well, <laughs> that's, that's hard one too. Um, what brings me joy? Um, let's see. Well, from the uh, from the office side of things, being an educator, you know, just seeing that light go off as students. Mm-hmm. That's the that's one of the the primary things, you know, especially in context, you know, with you know, the world that students are living in and what they're walking out into and to see that, that flicker, mm-hmm. not only of hope, but recognition. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that they've gained something that they can use, you know, to to better themselves as a form of armor, you know, to God in the world and not, you know, be totally, be naked, right? That mm-hmm. they, can, they can defend themselves in some form or fashion. And, I, of course, I've always thought that, you know, that, that was, you know, part of the point of, you know, you know being a creative person who, mm-hmm. you know, chase that that um chase that 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 passion chase that 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 um that endeavor right? to, to try to try to find a way to express themselves they could use it as a way to 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 um to not only speak for themselves but to to open up the door so that other people be willing to come in and see them mm-hmm. as individuals as opposed to just being you know um, another you know figure moving along with the masses you know mm-hmm. going about their their daily existence. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm pleased when I, I see students, you know, actually getting it, you know, the, the big it, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, there's something on here that, that, that just happened and that I can, I can do something with this thing to, to turning it, turn it into something else. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not showing up for a grade. Uh, and they're not just showing up to make sure that <laughs> they, they, they counted on the attendance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's <laughs> something else happening with them. And that's one of the things that that really you know, you know gives me hope mm-hmm. and gives me pleasure is that you know you know even though what we think of as higher learning and academia may not necessarily look the same across institutions and you know across spans of time because we always say that students are nothing like we were mm-hmm. when we were in undergrad but you know there's something happening people still care mm-hmm. about learning. You know, people still care about growing. People still care about thinking critically, and you know, you know, I see that in a lot of our students, and it it, it makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes you feel a lot better than, than the news does, <laughs> to be sure. You know that you know there are people that are are younger than I am, and they're they're still you know out there pursuing you know learning something else and mm-hmm. and trying to find life, and it becomes infectious. Mm-hmm. You know, they. Mm-hmm. They they share it. You can mm-hmm. see the glow, and then you know some of the peers will will pick up on it and you know start to engage them in ways that they hadn't engaged them before. Because mm-hmm. I I realize that so many kids are are afraid of you know number one they they're afraid of being the first person to speak, and mm-hmm. number two afraid of being wrong if they speak, mm-hmm. and so they're waiting for someone else to step out and you know say that you know this is what. I've learned from this experience and this is what I think. And then people are willing to, to kind of open up and share. Mm-hmm. And it's always good when that happens. And that's what, that's what makes it, it all so much worthwhile. Mm-hmm. This is making me smile because, um, so I, I, I very much, um, I very much share this sentiment. Um, and the truth of the matter is that I literally wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it weren't for my students. Um, it was through, um, it was them. Um, I was, I was asked to create a course on race and the law. 
um, race and education, and it was ended up being titled Race and the Law. And we walked through Supreme Court cases, you know, starting with Dred Scott, um, and then focusing in on, you know, primary, secondary, higher education, but up through Brown v. Board, and just walking through that Supreme Court jurisprudence. And then we did higher education, admissions, and race. Um, and um, I, I ended up having to build it from scratch. And it was a really terrifying process because of all the stories that are attached to my body. And I knew that I wanted the class to not be focused on shame or judgment or me and my stuff. I wanted it to be a genuine space for critical thinking and actual real conversation for all of my students across the spectrum. And it was my students that started waking me up to the possibility that I could do this because they started telling me that they never had a space where they could have the conversation in that way. And I watched them come alive and it gave me so much life that by the time I taught, so I created race and the law and then I created American courts, race and social issues and then taught race and the law again. And by the third time it happened, they were cueing me in and I realized, well, maybe this is something that would be of service in the general population. Maybe there are organizations and individuals that need this. And so I, I deeply, deeply agree and resonate with what you were saying. That, that is actually one of my favorite things and I miss it dearly. I love watching students come alive. I love watching people recognize their inherent capability. I love... I just, I love that. I, I just, yeah, this is not my interview, so I have to calm myself down. I just really, <laughs> it's not. I just, I just really, really strongly agree with you. And there's, there's something about looking for the capability that people inherently carry that is extraordinarily empowering, right? Like when a student comes into the classroom, I begin with the presumption that they are capable that they don't need fixing, that my job is to create the space so that they can fly and they can recognize what they themselves bring to the table. And there's just nothing quite like that experience of watching that come to life. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's, you know, it's part of, you know, us, you know, being comfortable in the, in the subject matter that we deal with and Mm -hmm. living it and owning it and having the passion for it and being able to, to share that passion with the students. Um, okay. uh, I had a former professor that explained it very succinctly when I told him that um, I, I got the job teaching at Gramley. He sent a, a, a one sentence, well, it wasn't really in a sentence, but he sent it back in a, a short email. He said, make sure that you're an artist teaching and not a teacher trying to make art. Mm. And, you know, and I was like, what kind of congratulations is that? <laughs> but you know, after, after the first semester, I yeah. understood what he meant. Mm-hmm. You know, is that you know anybody can talk about the subject matter. You can regurgitate what you read in the book, but it's something else to have internalized something and and and, and brought it you know so close to your core that you know people can feel it coming out of your pores yes. that it means something to you more so than just you know this material that you're running down because it's on the syllabus mm-hmm. and you know that's what I, I try to you know to, to take with me into every class every semester you know is that students understand that you know I'm not just talking about art because I walked in off the street and <laughs> you know somebody somebody let me into the classroom it's mm-hmm. because I believe in not only the history of it but the the power uh, therein and that it can activate power in other people 
even if they're not, you know, people that paint and draw, that you can take something away from this that can that can do something for you, right? And so sometimes, as you said, they they'll see that in you, and you can feed off that. You know, mm-hmm. that, that there's reciprocity going on there, mm-hmm. and that's what we need. Is that it's, it shouldn't be one sided. You know, mm-hmm. it should be you know a, a collaborative space as much as it possibly can be <laughs> without mm-hmm. it evolving into mess. Right. <laughs> yes, Jake. I think that's where we're. I think that's where we'll leave it. I think that was beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on The Space Between Us. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I really do value your perspective, and I think that this is an angle and a conversation that a lot of our listeners haven't heard before, and I'm really excited for people to tune in. you so much for joining us on the show today drake i just i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your life and your schedule to connect with us i deeply appreciate you and the work that you do and i am thrilled to be able to share this conversation with the space between us audience to everyone who's listening please know that i appreciate you i'm thinking about you and i can't wait until next week to connect with you again talk soon